Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me? We're going to look at God's Word. I asked them to put down a number of verses, but we're just going to take one. Matthew 23, 13. This is the Word of God. Now, I know you've got more than that, but we're just going to read the, the first verse, all right? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The word of the Lord. You, you may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word. Guide my lips. Father, may my words not simply be words, but may they be from you and Possessing the Holy Spirit's presence, Father, and coming with conviction and power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We talked last week about the Pharisees and where they came from. And it's useful to remind ourselves again, we're going to spend several weeks in this chapter in which Jesus attacks the Pharisees. Attacks, probably a legitimate word, criticizes, is too shallow. Um, He attacks them. And yet it's the attack of a, of a man who loves them and who includes even them in his, in his mercy. And we see that because the Apostle Paul was first the Pharisee Saul. And so uh, being a Pharisee is not, a, is not a, a definite hindrance or bar to entry into the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus does say that by their presence, their actions, their character, they are a hindrance. And they're not alone in being that. Pharisees came into being hundreds of years before Jesus. They were a response by the Jewish people to the events that we know as the exile. During the exile, the cream of the Israelite nation was taken away into captivity. The center of worship, the temple in Jerusalem, was broken down and burned. The the worship that went on there was impossible to do. The daily sacrifices, the flame in the temple, the Holy of Holies, to the best of our knowledge, disappeared at that time, and the contents of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, which you've heard of or you've seen movies that celebrate, disappeared at that time, and we have no idea where it went. Everything just sort of fell apart. And in that falling apart period, there arose certain men who said, we can't lose our focus on the things of God. God has made promises to Israel. God's promises are still true. We want to live in hope of those promises. Therefore, we are going to alter to a certain degree. We're going to use allegory and we're going to take extensions that are logical, but maybe not explicitly in the word. We're going to make extensions to the the word of God that fit our current circumstance. And we're going to worship God in the way that we can outside of Jerusalem, in Babylon, hundreds if not thousands of miles, well, a thousand miles from, from the hill where we worship for many years and where there is no temple. The, the, the group of Pharisees was not a group that was tied to the temple worship. The, the Levites and the priests, it seemed, who had, 
who had led the worship of the temple lost heart and kind of disappeared during this era. And so it was left to Laman to say, no, we're not going to abandon God. We're going to continue to worship God in whatever way we can. And out of the, the worship of the Pharisees came the, the worship of the synagogue, the, the, the weekly Sabbath gathering of the Jews around the word of God, a lot of innovations that weren't taught in the Old Testament but were clearly owned by God. God said they were valid because his own son participated in them when he came to earth came as a result of the Pharisees and they did they served a great purpose they did many wonderful things for Israel and they were not the Levites they were not the priests they weren't of the tribe of Levi Saul who was a Pharisee of Pharisees was a Benjamite he came from Benjamin and so there you can see that they're they're changing things and they're 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 acknowledging the facts on the ground and yet they're maintaining their focus on God but as happens so often and as my father used to say to us his children as he got older he would say having been involved in Christian ministry for 40 50 years at the time of his death he would say to us every Christian institution begins one way and within a generation it becomes the opposite of what it was started to be I don't know if that makes sense to you. It made sense to us because we saw, for instance, my dad who helped start a a youth ministry. It was a college ministry that was dedicated to having college students study the Bible. It was led by college students. There were staff members whose only goal was to empower college students to reach other college students. But over his lifetime, it became kind of of an empire with many, many professional staff, losing its focus on college students, losing its focus on the word of God that it had had. And so it was just out of the kind of realistic cynicism of a man who had spent decades watching things transpire that he said every, within a generation, every good institution becomes the opposite of what it was founded to accomplish. And that, of course, is the case with, with the Pharisees. I don't know if it was within a generation, but certainly within several hundred years, this group that was founded to teach people to worship God and to anticipate the coming of the Messiah, which was the great goal of the Pharisees, the great goal of the Old Testament was to be ready when God came for his people. That that vision was lost, and the Pharisees, instead of being those who would welcome and lead people into the kingdom of God, become an impediment, and they keep people out they become an obstacle. They become the problem rather than the solution. Now this happens over and over again. It has happened, and I know we have many who are from Roman Catholicism here this morning. It's happened in Catholicism. And many of us grew up in Protestant churches. It's happened in Protestantism. Many of us grew up in evangelical Protestant churches, and that has taken place in evangelicalism. That what we were began as, what our forefathers began a generation or two back, has become like the Pharisees, corrupted and an impediment. And I'm saying this about all of our backgrounds. I'm not singling out any one group. Those of you who are Roman Catholic know the Franciscans. You know that during the life of St. Francis of Assisi, back in the 12th century, 13th century, that Francis started a mendicant movement. It was a movement of people who, who 
devoted themselves to poverty to spread the word of God. They went around preaching and they would not own a thing. By the end of his life, his movement had become so popular that he himself was an outcast. And he became the leader of what was called the spiritual Franciscan, or the, the, the spiritual or the observant Franciscans. And there was a branch of the Franciscan movement that the Pope gave his approval to that was called the, the conventual. And they lived in convents, in monasteries. They had money. They became rich and powerful. Within his lifetime, it happened. And he was an outcast at the end. St. Francis, that great man of God. Happens over and over. The, mo- the monastic movement, before there was Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, there were the monks, the desert monks, Anthony. They went out to the desert to, to live in solitude and to worship God and to know the glory of God and to be devoted to it. But within their lifetimes, they became celebrities. And so instead of living out in their hermitages, they became people that, that the whole world paid pilgrimages to, came and visited them to, to, to gain their wisdom. And the monastic movement, instead of being a, an impoverished movement, became a very wealthy movement with much of the wealth in the, the church concentrated in monasteries. And this, this is the story of the church. It's the story of of our lives. It's the story of Roman Catholicism. Protestantism came to say, hey, we're not finding Christ in this way. And then the Protestants started teaching wrong things. And then the evangelicals came along and they said, you know what? People aren't coming to Jesus. They're coming to you and you've become an obstacle. And the evangelicals said, we will show you the way to Jesus. And and we're all Pharisees because the Pharisees were the first. And the Pharisees exist today. Although in a different guise than they first appeared. When they first appeared, they were teaching people to expect the Messiah. But when the Messiah came, they wouldn't recognize him. They did not worship him. And therefore, it became their goal to allow Judaism to exist without a Messiah without the temple and without a messiah and today's judaism is a reflection of that pharisaical movement and if you know anything about the mishnah and the torah and rabbinical judaism today you know that they proudly claim the pharisees as their their forefathers and so we have jesus speaking to these pharisees and he says to them Woe to you, you hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. I read this, and I'm reminded of the day back in our first year of marriage. I've told you about, some of you at least, about it before, when I, I got my wife angry at me, which I did a lot of those days. And uh, a week or two before, I'd gotten her angry at me and I'd been angry at her and so I'd gone out and gotten my pickup truck and drove around the neighborhood for about half an hour. Well, we were in another fight a couple weeks later and I was, I needed something from my pickup truck. So I went out to my pickup truck to get what I needed. It was winter, it was freezing cold and I just went out in the shirt sleeves. I went out and I came back to the front door and it wouldn't open. 
And I, I, there was a window up top, and I looked down, and sure enough, there's my 24-year-old wife sitting with her legs under her chin jammed like, kind of like this, with her back against the door, like, dare, I dare you to get in. And, uh, well, that's not the Pharisees. They're saying, come in, come in, but you have to pass through me. And they're like the people at Cedar Point who are in a line, you know, 2,000-person line, but they're not moving. And you're all going, yeah, yeah, move. And they're sitting there, and they're taking selfies, and they're doing all the things that they do. And you're sitting there frustrated and saying, come on. And meanwhile, people are ducking under from other areas because they're not moving. You've done that? You've been there? This is more like the Pharisees. They're saying, yeah, 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 but you've got to come through us, and we're the way. And they're not moving. That's what Jesus has said about them. They're not moving, and they won't allow anyone to come in. You have to come through them. This is the reality of these movements. This is the reality of the Pharisees. What they're saying is, yeah, we want you to come to the Messiah, but we don't really recognize this guy, and meanwhile, you've got to do what we say. You come in through us. And so they become an obstacle. They will not go in, and they shut heaven off from others because they're standing in the way, and they're saying, we keep the doors of heaven. We're the gatekeepers of heaven. And they have one principle, and that principle is us, me. You come through me. Somehow, it's, it's hard to believe, somehow they've forgotten that there's a Messiah, and when the Messiah comes, they've rejected him, and they're still promoting themselves, and they're standing in the presence of the Son of God. He's done miracles, he's taught, he's glorious. The crowds want to be at Jesus, but the Pharisees are saying, no way, no way. And Jesus is angry with the Pharisees. Jesus remains angry with Pharisees. Jesus is angry with anyone who stands in the way of us as little children coming to him. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And if there's anyone who gets in the way of those children coming to Jesus, he says it would be better if there were a millstone tied around his neck and he were thrown into the heart of the sea. He's speaking about the Pharisees. He's speaking about us. He's speaking about us in two ways here. One is, he's speaking about you as a child. He's saying, you're a child, and you need to come to him like a child. You need to put aside everything that hinders you and every obstruction and just come to Jesus. He's also speaking to us as potential Pharisees and actual Pharisees as those who have inserted ourselves between children and Jesus. And there are those here this morning who are Pharisees, and there are those who are children. And Jesus longs to have the children come to him, and he's angry at those who are saying, you have to come through me. The Pharisees... The Pharisees are standing in the presence of the Messiah that they proclaim, and they're refusing to worship him. They're saying to the people, hey, look, 
It's not him, it's us. They have a whole system they've erected around us that they say is the way to get to heaven. They say, you come through us and you'll find the kingdom of heaven. And that system involves great acts of precise obedience to God, giving everything, one-tenth that you raise of it to God, washing yourself, doing the things that they say you have to do. Their ceremonies. It's all their ceremonies. Pharisees love ceremonies because ceremonies are things in which human beings are powerful. If your approach to God requires a ceremony, somewhere in life, there's a Pharisee who's keeping you from God. Because Jesus is standing right there and he's saying, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm the Lord of the tithe, I'm the Lord of all these things and you're declaring that people have to obey you rather than me? Ceremonies are deadly. We'll talk more about this in weeks to come. Ceremonies are deadly. They demand precise forms of worship. They have many rules and they don't care about love and they don't have mercy. Pharisees are not lovers. They're rule-keeping and rule-promulgating machines. If your life reflects rules to your children rather than the love of God, and if you're calling your children to rules rather than to a God who loves them, You're a Pharisee. And if you think that following rules will get you to heaven, well, you're you're someone who has been misled by Pharisees because rules don't get us to heaven. God is a God who is love and is merciful. Pharisees know nothing of justice and mercy. It's all what we do. Where is justice and mercy in your life? In your teaching your children, in your speaking to the world, is justice, is the the mercy of God triumphing over justice? Or is it all justice and no mercy? And when you look at God, Do you look at him and see only an angry God? Or do you see a loving father? And if your vision is filled with an angry God, then you've been misled by Pharisees. A few years ago, a a program came out that I didn't see at the time, but I saw more recently that was live footage from the day of 9-11. I don't know, some of you probably have seen it. It's a documentary series done by National Geographic in which there was apparently a National Ge- some kind of videographer at the scene on 9-11 and that videographer, just as events unfolded, took video of everything that was going on. So there's startling and kind of stunning footage from inside the, the ground floor, the lobby of the World Trade Center. And you see 
the firemen arrive and you actually listen because they have recordings of people calling from the upper floors and saying, hey, it's burning here. We can't get out. We can't get into the corridor. You see the firemen talking to each other. You see the seriousness on their faces as they're, they're gathering with all their tools and their backpacks with the, the oxygen. You see them. You see the chaplain, the Roman Catholic chaplain of the group, and you see him pray for them. You just watch all this, and then you see them go. Fathers sending their sons. One of the men that was in charge was a father. His son, he sends him upstairs. These men are sent, and they know they're going to their death. They don't know it, but they assume it's a real risk. And they leave. And they go up the stairs... And they get the doors, like on the 102nd floor, I think it was, that it was broken. They couldn't get it open from the inside. The people wanted to get into the stairwell. No one could get in. The firemen are there, and they break the door down. And there are actually people who got out because of that in the film who talk about the vision they had when the door opened and they saw the firemen. And they had seen all the damage they had People on the floor had jumped. Those firemen left that floor and then they went up higher to get more men out. The people that they came for were saved. They lost their lives. Imagine for a moment those firemen getting there and someone on that floor saying, no, you got to come through me. No, you got to do it my way. No, you can't just go out there. You've got to pay your dues, and that's to me. These men who are dying. That's what we have here in the Bible. That's what we have in Jesus Christ, the Savior who's dying to save you. And there are people all around you who say, it's not that simple. You've got to come through ceremony. You've got to be baptized. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You have to pray this. You've got to be obedient. The kingdom of heaven does not need doorkeepers. When Jesus sent us out, he said, go out in the highways and the byways. Go out everywhere to every form of person and tell them that I have come and that salvation is available. We are not called to keep the doors shut. We are called to open the doors and to yell to the world, come in. So, some of you have people that you've placed between yourself and God. Some of you have people who have placed themselves between you and God. Often it's something that we do ourselves. When I was younger, my older brother loved God, my younger brother loved God, my younger brother was really righteous, and I, I kind of hated him for his righteousness. And I kind of said, I'm not going to be like that. I don't want to be like that. I was resentful that he was good and I was bad. I had placed him between me and God and his righteousness. Who have you placed between yourself and God and said, I can't be like that? If you've placed anyone between yourself and God, anyone whose opinion counts to you, anyone whose righteousness seems to be greater than you, 
then what you've allowed is for someone to become a Pharisee who doesn't even necessarily want to be a Pharisee, but they're standing between you and Christ. Others of you have people who want to be Pharisees in your life. They've given you the rules. They've told you the way. They tell you it's through me. It's my way. I'm showing you. And they become an obstacle to you, just as the Pharisees were to the Jews of Jesus' day. Imagine that. Thousands upon thousands of people were not were not saved, did not come to Jesus because the Pharisees said, no, it's me. It's not the Pharisee, it's Jesus. It's not the Pharisee, it's the Son of God who came to die to save you from your sinner. Somehow and in some way, the church in America, the church that we're a part of, needs to get back to saying, it's Jesus and it's not man. It's not the fancy, cool dude who's preaching. It's not the ceremonies that we do. To the extent that these have any power at all and any meaning, it's because Jesus is glorious, the Son of God, who came to save sinners. Humility is of the essence to defeat Pharisaism. Humility. Humility to say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Humility to say, I'm not going to let anything get between me and Jesus. Humility like blind Bartimaeus, who Jesus was walking by and he heard that Jesus was going and he said, I hear that Jesus is coming. Jesus, have mercy on me. He starts shouting, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he's surrounded by a bunch of Pharisees, gatekeepers, technically not Pharisees, but serving the role of a Pharisee. He's saying, Be quiet. Master doesn't have time for you. Be quiet. Shut your mouth. Quit shouting. If he wanted to have you, he'd come to you. You've said enough. Be quiet. And he keeps on shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, screaming at the top of his lungs in the midst of a crowd, Jesus, son of mercy, son of David, have mercy on me. No pride. None at all. A great deal of need and a great deal of satisfaction. Because Jesus listens to those who say, I need you. Don't let the Pharisees stand in your way. Don't let any person get between you and God. Make sure you find Jesus. Make sure you know him personally. Make sure you've turned to him and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, on my soul. Because you will be saved even more surely than those people on the 102nd floor were. He's died for you. He's paid the price of your salvation. Turn to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus who in his love has saved us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will not allow anyone or anything to come between us and him. Not our pride, not the pride of others, not our desire to be righteous, nor the demands of others that we be righteous. May we come as sinners needing a savior. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will bring glory to your name as a church as we as we kill the spirit of the Pharisees and live in the presence of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.